Krista just sang of something that I really desperately wanted to include in my message this morning, but for the sake of time, didn't address. So I'll give it to you in two sentences, okay? Just the contrast between God in his greatness, in his magnificence, in his infinitude, and the fact that he is still a God who is near to us. You know, a God who, who loves us tenderly and, and personally such that he hears his children voice, children's voices, as uh, Krista sang of this morning. So I appreciate that song and, and the truth uh, that under, underlies it. Well, let me go ahead and dismiss our junior church at this point. So you can be dismissed with the O'Briens over to my left. This is for young people up through grade four. And if you are visiting with us, uh, they'll be back in the lobby at the conclusion of the service. Um, when we finish up here, they'll finish up out there. And they'll have an exciting time. As many of you know, uh, let me have you go ahead and turn, if you would, in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you need to use uh, one of the Bibles from the pew rack in front of you, I would encourage you to do so. And you can find James chapter 1 on page 1700, 1700. Most of you know that uh, our family came here from the Pacific Northwest. I mean, there's a more convoluted story than that. But most recently, from the Pacific Northwest. And one of the things that we used to enjoy doing was going down to the coast of the Pacific Ocean. And, and let me just say, the coast of the Pacific Ocean, at least up there, is a little bit different from your, your typical beach idea that you have uh, maybe on, on some of the Atlantic beaches and further south. It's a little more rugged. It's considerably colder. People tend to dress warmer, and, uh, which provides some safety uh, when going to, in going to the beach. But, you know, it is a massive ocean. And it is such an amazing thing as you watch the, the waves roll in and crash on the shore. And because there's a, you know, more expanse where there's, there's rocks jetting out and things like that, it's just a pretty dramatic thing. And, uh, and when you see those waves, it really gives such an impression of, of power. You know, our, our kids would sometimes go out into the water and kind of jump in the waves. And, and there's that sense of, of power and how they can carry you away. You know, just as, as each wave breaks on the shore, another one comes over the horizon almost as if to take its place. And when you stand and you watch those waves roll in, one after another after another, it seems like they've come from far, far away. But the reality is that isn't the case. Because what waves are, is they are what happens when wind and tide take hold of the waters that are there all the time and just kind of create an undulating motion, kind of a, a, a cyclic, oscillating kind of thing. And in fact, when you see, see breakers, those things that people get so excited about with surfing, crazy people, okay, but they get on those surfboards under those waves, that's just that wave kind of moving up and down, and as the wave oscillates and comes in towards shore, the bottom hits it and it kind of cuts the movement out from under it, and the top of that wave crashes over the top with all that power, with all the potential for damage, as we see in some of these hurricane situations. But the fact is, it's not that the water's going somewhere, really. The water's there the whole time. But that water is, is driven by the wind. It's affected by the tides. You know, as I, I told the kids in one of my classes recently, you know, the tides actually come from the attraction between the moon and the earth. But we'll leave that discussion for another day, all right? But it's these external forces acting on that water that is already there that causes those, those waves. They're not powerful in and of themselves. 
But it's the other things that create that movement. And folks, the challenge of faith for us is the challenge to not be a wave. There are a lot of winds. There are a lot of tides in human life. As we learned last week, God's purpose for allowing those forces to act upon us is to develop within us a more steadfast faith and as a result, spiritual maturity. But the question James asks us in our text today is whether we're allowing those forces to build that kind of Christian character, that genuine Christ-likeness, or are we double-minded and unstable just being blown around and tossed around by this wind or that? That's the imagery that he uses. So with that in mind, let's take a look at our text for this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8 in James chapter 1. James says here in verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like, notice, a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Most of us have heard the account of how on the Sea of Galilee, right, which is where Jesus spent much of his ministry and his disciples with him. It's, it's near where Jesus grew up and where his half-brother James grew up. And on the Sea of the Galilee, not, not unlike uh, Michigan, there isn't a consistent, regular kind of a tidal or wave pattern, but the winds can come up and, and the storms can come up suddenly and create great waves. And they're driven about and those waves are tossed and, and they throw things around that are in the course of their path. And James has that in mind and he says, you know what, as Christians... We're supposed to be stable. We're supposed to be secure. We're supposed to be solid. Not driven with the wind and tossed about like the water is affected by those winds and those things that create the waves. This is our third message this morning in our study through the book of James. And I've entitled this series Down to Earth because James is a book about living out your faith. James is going to teach us that it's not enough just to say that you know Jesus. If we're believers, then we need to live like we really do know Him. Because a relationship with Him changes everything. It changes how we face the harsh realities and difficulties of life. We talked about that last week. And it changes what we value and where we look for wisdom to guide how we live. And that's what we're going to talk about this week. The title of the message this morning is, Our Desperate Need for Wisdom. Our Desperate Need for Wisdom. Let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we come to you this morning acknowledging our great need for your mind, for the wisdom that is from above, for the wisdom that you so freely give. Father, our our flesh and this world about us, yea, even the devil himself, want to get us all stirred up and twisted up, upside down about things chasing after the wrong things, embracing things that really aren't so. And you give us through your word, through the ministry of your spirit in our souls, the truth that we ought to live by and the wisdom that we need and and ought to desire to live in a manner that honors you. So I pray, Father, that you would use our minutes together here this morning confront us about how desperately we need your wisdom and to help us see how readily 
available it is to us. If we'll be willing to, to listen and hear and yield to it. And so, Father, use your word in our lives as is needed. If there are any here this morning who don't know Christ as their Savior, might they realize that their greatest need is to know Jesus, to receive eternal life, to have their sins forgiven, and receive new life in Christ. Father, we have many and varied needs. The answer for all of them is you. So we pray, Father, you would use your word to that end this morning. Guide my thoughts, my words. Open the ears, the minds, the hearts of these, your people that you might accomplish what you desire to do in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So just so you kind of know where we're going this morning, I, I want the, to leave you with really three ideas from this message. Now the first two are, are declarative statements, if you will. The third one's a question. So here's, here's the first thing we're going to talk about, that you desperately need God's wisdom. Second thing we're going to talk about is the fact that God wants to give you His wisdom. And then the third idea, which is the question, is will you receive it? Okay, so you desperately need God's wisdom. God wants to give you His wisdom. Will you receive it? That's simple and straightforward enough, and that's what this text is. And that's what we are confronted with in these four verses. So let's consider first our desperate need for wisdom. Verse 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. It giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given with him, given him. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Now let's start with that first word there, if. If any of you lack wisdom. That, that is a perfectly good translation. But James isn't intending to suggest that maybe you don't need wisdom. You know, there's some of you maybe who do, but, but most of us, you know, we don't really need it. So if you need it, ask. But, but for the rest of you, don't worry about it. He's not saying that. It's not as if he's saying, well, you know, you're smart enough to handle most of life on your own, but now and then maybe you'll have a problem. So when that happens, if you need wisdom, then at that point, be sure and ask God for help. I suppose that's true to some degree, but, but it's at best misleading. Because James isn't saying, you know, there's a lot of time when you don't need wisdom, but if you do, for the few of you, or for those few occasions, he's not saying that. A better way for us to think about this, and this is supported by the way the, the text is written in, in the original language, is when you realize your need for wisdom, or as you have that need, as you recognize that need for wisdom, go to God and ask for it. Now, the immediate context suggests that one of the times when we might especially feel that acute need for God's wisdom is when we are facing the trials of life. You know, those even greater burdens. I mean, we have trials every day, but, but some of them in particular show us and reveal to us how desperately we need God's wisdom. Back in verses 2 through 4, we were told to consider it joy when we face those various hard realities of life. And when we do, we may have some difficulty counting it all joy. You know, that's what James says, count it all joy. We say, Lord, I, I don't know how to do that. Help me. That's what we talked about last week. We may be struggling with accepting our trials as from the hand of a gracious God, and so we need wisdom. But although our text is connected to verses 2 through 4, I mean, it, it's the next thing, right? There's a, a contextual connection there. Verses 5 through 8, I would suggest, also stand on their own. 
James kind of writes in a proverbial sense, and he lays out things that in one sense are true on their own. Yes, they, they fit together, but you know, he's, he's teaching here that in every situation, in trials, yes, that might be a time when you particularly recognize your need for wisdom, but in every avenue of life, in everything that happens every day, all the time, you need God's wisdom. Folks, we need wisdom for everything and in everything. Not only the particularly pressured times of trial, but every day. And James says, as you realize how much you need God's wisdom, ask Him for it. You know, folks, we're not as smart as we might think we are. We're not as clever as we might think we are. We're certainly not as wise as we might think we are. We always need God's help. We don't need God's wisdom some of the time. We desperately need God's wisdom all of the time. I I like to peruse church websites. It's probably safe to say that I have looked at more church websites than anybody else in this room. That's probably true. I don't know that because I don't know what you look at, but but that's probably true. In fact, it, it could perhaps be true that I have looked at more church websites than all of you together because it's probably not something most of you sit around and do. You know, I enjoy looking at church websites. I do. You know, you know, I, I, I suppose I started when, when way back when, you know, at, at my last church, we realized that we didn't have a website and we needed to have one. And I'm not very techy and whatever. So I was looking for ideas. But, you know, I, I found that I learn a lot more than just, you know, look and feel kind of things. You know, I, I learn about how people approach things and, 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 and how they set their priorities and, and, I, and, and those kinds of things. And so, you know, it's just something that, that I do. And, and one church website identifies their purpose statement, and I don't remember if I've got this exactly word perfect, but, but really close. Helping people discover the unexpected joy of desperate dependence on Jesus. Okay, let me read that again. Helping people discover the unexpected joy of desperate dependence on Jesus. Okay, I think that's really good. You know? and, and, and I really like that idea of desperate dependence on Jesus because it puts us in our right place. I've probably mentioned before, somewhere over the years, uh, a friend of mine with whom I served in ministry some years back, and and he was either teaching a Sunday school lesson or or preaching in a service or doing a training time or a chapel or something. And and he made, those of you who who know where, Dan Mawson is the guy, okay? Brother Sherwin would know who that is. My family would know who that is. But but Brother Dan made this statement, and it's just been cemented in my brain ever since. You know, I may reach a point where I don't remember my own name, but I don't think I'll ever forget this, okay? And, and, and he just talked about how we desperately, desperately, desperately need God. And, you know, when you hear me make a statement somewhere along the line where I talk about our desperate need for God, that's probably where it comes from because that thought is just in my mind that we desperately, desperately, desperately need the Lord in our lives. And, and we desperately, desperately, desperately need His wisdom. You know, most of us probably feel like, or at least we live like, we can handle the, the moderate problems of life on our own. You know, we, we, we wouldn't say that expressly, but we tend to live that way. We can deal with maybe cranky children or, or a prickly boss, right, Pastor Micah, or, or a bad case of the flu, you know, or a pile of work that gets dumped on your desk. You know, we, we understand normal pressures and we learn how to deal with them. But, but sometimes things come along, those, those big trials that kind of strip the gears of life so that we're going nowhere and we're flat on our face on the ground. And at that point, when, when all the human options are foreclosed, our only hope is the Lord. And we cry out to God in desperation, knowing that if He doesn't help us, we're sunk. 
Folks, that's a lesson that we have to learn over and over and over again, and that's why God brings trials. Because absent those trials, we tend to think we can do it on our own. And God needs to remind us. He needs to teach us and reteach us that we desperately need Him, that we desperately need His wisdom. And it's a lesson we need to remember and relearn every day. Folks, we all need God's wisdom all the time. Do you agree with that? Okay. But here's the question. Do you live that way? You know, when you see something in God's Word that is clearly His wisdom, and it's plain, and it's straightforward, but you kind of don't like it. It kind of upsets the apple cart. Makes you think a little differently than what you're comfortable with. Makes you live a little differently than what you're comfortable with. And then you find out, do I really believe that I desperately need God's wisdom? That I need all His wisdom all the time? Or is this one of those times when I really don't need it? And I can just kind of set that aside. And gloss past that. And and go on with things as normal. Folks, we all do need all God's wisdom all the time. Now let me spend just a moment on what we're talking about when we speak of wisdom. As I suppose a general distinction, uh, most of us recognize that biblically speaking, while, while knowledge and wisdom are, are, are somewhat synonymous, there is a difference in emphasis. Okay? Knowledge emphasizes knowing something, and, and that can be more than just intellectual content. Right? That, that can be knowing uh, relationally, that can be uh, knowing in an experiential way, but it's, it's the idea of, of knowing something, assenting that, yes, it's so, this is so, I understand this, I, I, I'm experiencing this. So it can be an intimate, even experiential knowledge. But wisdom, on the other hand, has to do expressly with putting that knowledge into practice in your life. It's applying what you know, living what you know. Sometimes people will say, well, wisdom is skill in living. You know, and, and you can apply wisdom in a secular sense. There are people that we would say are wise in this area or that area because they take the things that they know, they apply it in, in life or in, in a particular vocation in a skillful sense. But we understand the Bible is talking about skill in living in the sense of living spiritually, applying the knowledge from God's Word. And, and the book of James is most certainly a book about wisdom. I mean, it talks about it expressly on several occasions. But throughout, it's showing us, you know what, here's what you know, here's what you say you believe, here's the relationship you say you've entered into. Are you living that out? Are you applying that day by day? When you face trials, are you applying the truth that God is a good God who has your best interest at stake? You know, when you face temptations, are you, are you facing it the way God's Word says we ought to, following the example of Jesus or not? Are you applying those things that we find in the Word of God in daily life? That's, that's what James is all about, about wisdom in life in a general sense, being a doer of God's Word, not a hearer only, facing trials in light of your faith. Those are the kinds of things James emphasizes. He's encouraging truly wise living. And here, as he speaks of wisdom directly, I think James views wisdom as, you know, having God's perspective on things, seeing past circumstances, looking beyond our limited earthly understanding and embracing God's perspective and God's priorities and God's plan and by faith allowing that, our our knowledge of God's priorities and His plan and His purposes, allowing that to shape our lives and our responses to things. That's the wisdom God wants us to have. He wants us to see the error of our finite self-oriented human perspective and instead embrace his perspective on everything and then let that govern how we live. 
And if you're honest, you know that you need that all the time. You need continually to see and be reminded of and, and be encouraged and exhorted to embrace God's perspective constantly. Folks, you desperately need God's wisdom. Secondly, God wants to give you his wisdom. Verse 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Folks, God offers wisdom to all without reservation in order to help you. You see that word liberally? Okay, now we, we might think of it as meaning generously, and, and to some degree I suppose it does, and many translations render it that way. But the basic meaning of that word that's translated liberally is single or simple. Okay? A, a form of the word appears in Matthew 6.22 and in Luke 34. In both of those texts, Jesus speaks of your eye being single. Okay? Kind of single-minded, a, a particular focus. And so while God certainly does give wisdom liberally and generously, the point here is that God gives wisdom with a single, simple motive, and that is to help you, to minister to you. He, he has no reservations about it, no ulterior motives, no quid pro quo, no, well, okay, I'll give you wisdom if you do this. If, if we have a heart to receive God's wisdom and we ask Him for it, He gives it freely for the simple purpose that He loves us and wants to help us. Nothing else. No expectations. I mean, yes, the Bible gives expectations that we ought to live for God, but God doesn't give wisdom on a contingency basis, on a I'll do this, you do this basis. If we need His wisdom, we recognize that need, we ask Him for it, and we say, God, I want to hear what you have to say. He gives His wisdom liberally, simply, singly, because He loves you and is concerned for your welfare. God offers wisdom to all without reservation in order to help you. The next part of the verse teaches us also that God gives wisdom without criticizing. Okay? He upbraideth not. He doesn't chide us. He doesn't criticize us. He doesn't belittle us. Now, sometimes you go to somebody for some counsel, and that's what you get. You know, you get a lecture. You get uh, a scolding. You get belittled. God doesn't do that. We come to Him in our desperation, and we ask God for wisdom, knowing that He's not going to look at us and say, what's wrong with you? You ought to be stronger than that. You should be able to handle this by now. We've been through this enough times, right? Some of us who are parents have said things like that. That's not the way God deals with things. He doesn't scold when we come and we admit our need and we ask Him for help. We say, Lord, I desperately need Your wisdom. He gives it liberally. He gives it freely. He gives it without reservation and He gives it without scolding. Praying to God, even when you're struggling with sin, is not like turning yourself in at the police station, right? God's not going to cuff you and lock you up. He's a loving and wise friend and father who will hear your plea and help you. Now, He may correct you. He, he may set some things straight. But it's always going to be in love and in concern and a burden for your welfare. He never says when you come to Him, you again? Why couldn't you learn this the last time? I've, you've asked this question before. I've given you the answer before. Why can't you learn for When we come to God, realizing how desperately we need His wisdom, and we ask Him for it, He gives it freely. He gives it simply. He gives it just purely because He wants to help us, and He doesn't chide. He doesn't uh, upbraid. He doesn't criticize or belittle us. God won't turn us away when we need Him most. So we've talked about how desperately we need God's wisdom. And God wants to give you 
His wisdom. Now, I think we should all have no trouble understanding those true truths. They're, they're just right there plainly expressed for us in verse 5. It's, it's plain and simple. But as we go forward from there, it gets a little tricky. Okay, look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Okay, so here's kind of a condition that's being given. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, I think this part of the passage needs our careful attention. You know, and I think this is a passage that is often misunderstood, and it sometimes kind of burdens people because of that misunderstanding. See, the difficulty is in the language of the warning that's given in verses 6 and 7. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. You know, and we might read that and say, so it, it seems like God is kind of contradicting himself a little bit. I mean, he just said in verse 5 that he'll give wisdom to anyone who asks. But then he says, except someone who has doubts, someone who is wavering. You you might say, it seems like I have doubts and questions all the time. I want to believe what God says, but sometimes I I just struggle with that. And my my faith isn't as strong as it could be. And you'd say, Pastor, are verses 6 and 7 saying that God won't give me wisdom because of that? Because I have doubts? Because I have concerns? Because I'm I'm a little bit fearful? And, And when you read it, it might kind of sound like it's saying that. And people think that. And then they say, well, because I have doubts, what's the point? Why should I ask God? Because it says here, let not that man think that he's going to receive anything from the Lord. And they get discouraged. And they just kind of say, what's the point? I mean, God says he'll give wisdom, but really he won't. Folks, that's not what these verses are saying. This isn't talking about having doubts or uncertainty about whether God is really going to come through for you. And yet that's the impression that that many of us have. In fact, most translations use the word doubt, you know, where we have uh, nothing wavering or, or waver. They use doubt or doubt. Without any doubting, he must not doubt. With no doubting. But the warning isn't about having intellectual doubts. The wavering that James cautions against doesn't have... The, it's not connected with the idea of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? It's not, not that kind of doubts or wavering. That's not what James has in mind. The passage isn't saying that the moment you doubt, God turns his back on you and says, nothing for you. You have too many questions in your mind. That's not what it's saying. That's not the way God operates. So I want us to look at two expressions in these verses that will help us understand what James is really talking about when he warns us not to waver. And first, I want us to look at the Greek word in verse 6 that's translated wavering and wavereth. Okay, it's there twice. And like I say, in some translations, it's doubt or doubting or doubts. And that word is the same word that's translated partial a little bit later in the book of James. In James chapter 2 and verse 4. Let me have you turn over there. should just be maybe the next page. should be a couple pages. But James chapter 2 and verse 4. Okay? In James 2 verse 4 it says, Are ye not then partial? There's the word. Okay? Same, same word family there. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Now, the concern that James is expressing in the, expressing in the beginning of chapter 2 has to do with believers making distinctions between the poor and the rich. Okay? They're discriminating, if you will. They're making distinctions. They're making a choice to ignore the poor who come into the services of worship and to show favoritism to the rich. That's what that passage is about, and we'll get to that in due course, and we'll study it out in some depth. But, the, but my point is just here that word is about discriminating, about making a choice between this or this, about being, uh, making distinctions. 
And, and that's the same word that we have wavering or doubting in our text. So it's not about wondering if you can really believe something. It's not about struggling with doubts and questions. It's not talking about lacking a subjective sense of confidence, that, that feeling that, yes, I can really hold fast to this because it's true. We want to feel that way. Sometimes we don't feel that way, even though we know what God says. That's not what the word means. It's about being torn between two things. That's what the wavering is. That's what the doubting is if if your translation has that word. It's about being torn between two choices. So So there's one indication of what James's point is here. Here's the second expression I want us to talk about. Notice the end of the passage, verse 8, where it says, a double minded man is unstable in all his ways. And the word translated double minded is a, a Greek word that, that commentators think James just made up, coined on the spot. Now, he did it under inspiration, all right? But the word basically starts with a little prefix that means two, and then the word that means soul. So he says, a two-souled man. Someone who is a, a, a divided, right? Their, their soul, their life is kind of divided, split between two. He's a two-souled man. That double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And you say, why did James use that word? That's the first, this is the first place not only that it appears in the Bible, but that it appears in anywhere in, in Greek literature. And so why did James uh, you know, make up this word, coin this term in this case? Well, he wants to get his point across using a vivid word picture. Sometimes it's as if we believers have two souls, so to speak. There is within us a conflicting set of desires. On the one hand, we really do want the wisdom of God because we recognize how foolish our own thinking is and we we need that to be exposed. But at the same time, we like to have things our own way. And we like things to go in accordance with our own plans. And we like to stick with that which makes us comfortable and secure. You know, James here was a good surgeon of the soul, so to speak, in that he understood the conflicts inside all of us. A little bit later on in in chapter 3, he says this about the tongue. He says in verse 9 of chapter 3, With it we bless God, even the Father, and with it we curse men, which are made after the similitude of God. Then he adds this in verse 10. He says, Out of the same mouth, right? Out of that same double-souled person proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be, but sadly, folks, all too often they are. All of us who are believers, to some degree or another, we're all a bundle of conflicting desires. We want to serve God, but we have our own plans. We want to be gracious, but we trample on anyone who gets in our way. We want to be generous, but we selfishly take care of ourselves, often with little concern for others. And so we're two-souled. We're double-minded, at least to some degree. And what James is saying is this. God has no commitment to giving you wisdom so that your self-focused purposes will work. Sometimes when we say we want wisdom, what we really want is a solution to the problem that's acceptable to us. You know, an adjustment to, to things that makes us more comfortable, that, that fulfills our own plans. We have an idea and we say, God, give me wisdom so I can do what I've already decided I'm going to do well. You know, God, I, I need your help and your grace so that I can do what I've already decided to do with a minimum of difficulty and problems. That's being too sold. That's being double-minded. Where on the one hand, we're, we're going to God and we're acknowledging that, that God has something to offer and that we need His wisdom and that we need His grace. And on the other hand, we're desiring it to pursue our own agenda, to do our own things, to live life in a way that is most pleasing and comfortable and easy and acceptable to us. God's wisdom is for those 
who want to follow God's plan for their life. It's for those who embrace God's kingdom purposes, we might say. Remember how Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Folks, if your heart is for God's glory and his priorities and his plan, then he'll surely give you wisdom along with everything else that you need, right? Jesus said, if, you, if, you'll, if you'll seek me, if you'll seek my kingdom, if you'll pursue my righteousness, hey, I'll take care of everything that you need to live that life in, in a way that honors me and, and that brings glory to me. So if your heart's desire is to that end, that'll give you everything you need. But if you're double-minded, if you're two-souled, if you want wisdom just so you can deal with life more effectively on your terms, James says, let not that person think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Over a century ago, a man named C.F. Deans wrote a description of this double-minded man. I don't know anything about C.F. Deans, except that in the Biblical Illustrator online, there's this paragraph that I found interesting. He says, a two-souled man is unsettled, unstable in all his ways. His opinions are fluctuating and so are his sentiments. Sometimes he is repenting of his sins. And sometimes he's repenting of his repentance. Sometimes the importance of the future overwhelms him and sometimes he feels that nothing is worth thinking of but the present. Such instability of sentiment must unsettle the believer. The man is sometimes as serene as a May morning and sometimes as sweeping as a cyclone. You can never know how he will receive you or how he will behave under certain circumstances. His instability imparts its changefulness to his countenance. While he is looking one way, his soul has gone another. His speech is ambiguous. His tone of voice wavering. His utterance now very rapid and now very slow. Sometimes he answers offhand and without reflection. And on other occasions, he requires so much time to consider that the opportunity for speech has passed. He is untrustworthy in every department of life. Now, that's all interesting, kind of paints the extreme picture, but here's, here's the sentence that I want you to home in on. That man cannot receive anything of the Lord. He cannot hold his hand long enough to have anything placed therein. Now, where I found that, that uh, paragraph, there was one word in that paragraph that was highlighted. I don't know if that was by the, the author's original intention or if that was something that whoever edited it and put it into this context put there, but the word that was highlighted was cannot. That man cannot receive anything of the Lord. It's not that God is unwilling to give it, right? It's not he will not receive it. It's not that God says, no, no wisdom for you. The issue is that the man cannot receive it. It's not that God won't give it, but the man won't receive it, right? Verse 5 is still true. God gives liberally. He, he gives generously. He gives freely to any who will ask him for wisdom, but there are some, even believers, because James is talking about believers here, who cannot receive that wisdom. And folks, that's the tragedy of double-minded Christianity. The double-minded can't receive God's wisdom because they won't stand still long enough to receive it. That's the essence of what Deem says. And then they don't appreciate it when God sets it before them, and at the end of the day, they don't act on it even when it's staring them in the face. You know, most of God's wisdom comes straight through the pages of Scripture clearly and plainly. And, and, and it's not that God won't give it. He has given it. He'll give more, but, but He's given us the substance of what we need, all things that pertain unto life and godliness right here in this book. And yet, when we get double-minded, we cannot receive it. We won't receive it. We, we, it just passes by us. 
We, we ignore it. We sidestep it. We're hearers but not doers. And so we cannot receive the wisdom of the Lord. And so we go after wisdom apart from God. That's, that's what finally tricked Eve in the Garden of Eden. And back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise... Okay, so, so she thought she could obtain wisdom apart from God. She thought that by eating of this tree, it would make her wise. You know, that's like trying to get sunlight without the sun. Okay? I suppose tanning salons are all about that, but I, I digress. Okay? You know, if you want sunlight, you go to the sun. If you want wisdom, you go to the source. You go to God. And here's the truth, folks. We're all double-minded, at least to some level and to some degree. There's, there is in all of us that pull that says, I can do this myself. I can figure this out myself. I I know what I need. It wasn't that Eve was some terrible person who had been conditioned to do wrong. She simply talked herself into the idea, or the devil talked her into it, but she talked herself into the idea that taking a shortcut would make her smarter or wiser or more beautiful or more fulfilled or happier or less frustrated or somehow fill the void that she felt within. And folks, it's, it's not that Eve is somehow worse than us. She's just like us. And we're just like her. Eve and Adam lived in paradise, but somehow that wasn't enough. And you know, circumstances never are enough. We we always look for something else, it seems, when God is right there for us every minute. And it's the story of the whole human race, repeated over and over and over again over the centuries. Ever since Eden, we have been a double-minded race with high hopes and low desires fighting against each other. It would be good if we would just simply admit that fact. Folks, there is in all of us a a tug of loyalty between God's perfect will and our selfish will, between God's heavenly way and our shallow, earthbound way, between God's glorious kingdom and our tiny little fiefdom of our own making. And that tug, that conflict, is in every situation and every location in human life. There are times when you'll live in God's wisdom and you'll submit to the wisdom that is revealed in His Word. And then there are other times when you have no doubt about what is right. You know what the wise thing to do is, but you choose to do what is wrong because that wrong choice pleases you at the moment. You know it's wrong to speak to your children that way, but you give in to your anger anyway. You know it's wrong to gossip about a friend, but you like the titillation of telling the tale about another person. You know you shouldn't buy that next thing. You've spent way too much already. And you have more than you need, but you indulge your pleasure and your desires. You know that you should have more time in your life for reading God's Word, but you would rather give yourself another 45 minutes of sleep. You find it easier to spend X amount of dollars on a luxurious meal than you do to put the same amount of money in the offering plate. You know you shouldn't look at that explicit material, but you do anyway because it brings some sort of sensual pleasure. And we could just go on and on, folks, with the things that we struggle with where God's Word is so plain and so clear and so open and and there's no interpretation question. There's no doubt about what God desires and what is wise and what is right and what is proper and yet there is within us that, that selfish, fleshly desire And and James says when we give in to that kind of double-mindedness, that kind of two-souledness, that we can't receive the wisdom of God. We've just kind of put our arms up and said, no, not listening, not seeing, not, not, not going to do it. Folks, you can't humbly and honestly read this passage and 
and frankly everything else in the book of James. And, and do so, you know, looking into the perfect law of liberty and examining yourself with, without realizing, Lord, there is this disloyalty in me. I have a divided heart. Sometimes it's uglier and worse than other times, but, it, but it's there. I'm unstable. I'm unsettled. Just like the tossing and churning of the waves, driven by every wind of desire and every wind of emotion, driven by every wind of temptation and every wind of envy. A double-minded person is unstable in all his or her ways. That's what James says. Sometimes we will sing the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Remember the, the end of the last stanza? It says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Right? There's that contradiction. I love Him. And, and yet there is within me this, this double-mindedness that sometimes just wants to pull away. And he says, here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Left to ourselves, folks, we will be like those sheep going astray, going our own way, turning aside, running away, always looking for greener pastures. Left to our own desires and to our own wisdom, we will always leave the God we love. What a strange and sad and fearful reality. But the, but the Word of God teaches that it is so. That even as believers, we're still sinners. We still have a flesh. We still have that inherent double-mindedness. Praise God when He takes us home, that's gone. We, we become perfectly and purely single-minded, single-souled, if you will, entirely focused on God and His plans and His ways and His will. But for now, we've got to be honest about the fact that, you know what, left to ourselves, if we're not constantly going to God and saying, Lord, I desperately need Your wisdom, and asking Him for it, and and reading it, and saying, God, now help me to listen. Help me not just to listen. Help me to obey. Help me to submit. Help me to yield. Help me to do what You ask me to do, what You make plain in Your world. If we don't do that, even as believers, you know, we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. You know, maybe you say, I'm I'm too ashamed to share that with the Lord. You know what? He knows it already. He, He knows everything that's going on in your mind. He knows those of you who are sitting here right now saying, when's he ever going to be done? I am not interested in this in the least. He also knows those who are sitting here saying, this is exactly what I need. This is exactly how I need to live. He knows all those things. We may as well be transparent before him. And we may as well acknowledge for for our sake, if nothing else, and and for the sake God is a a God that we communicate with and say, Lord, I I, I see the double-mindedness in my life. And, you know, God doesn't upbraid. When, when we come and we say, Lord, I, I see my need. I need your help. He doesn't say, go away. You had your chance. He says, welcome, my child. Let me teach you. Let me show you. Let me point you in the right direction. Let me help you work through some of these things. that You've dug yourself a pit, and we need to dig ourselves out of it. The, the only hope we have, folks, is to return to the God who loves us so much that he will not let us go even when we run from him. We need to embrace the wisdom he's already given and then look to him for more. Remember I told you my third point was a question. Well, I've already covered the point. Okay? Will you receive the wisdom that God gives? Do you desperately need God's wisdom? God wants to give you his wisdom. Will you receive it? We tend to think of asking for wisdom as dealing with, you know, 
subjective questions that the Bible doesn't address for us explicitly. And it doesn't specify for a particular situation. But folks, most of the wisdom that we need is found already recorded for us in the Scripture, plainly and clearly and straightforwardly. One of my former pastors used to say, and he would say this from the pulpit, he would say, you know, people come to me for counseling. 95% of the reason people come for counseling has already been answered right over the top of this pulpit. It's been said, if you just listen and, and you just take to heart what God has already given us. And, and I've often said that the best biblical counseling is a counseling that says, well, let's see what God has already said about that. And let's talk about, okay, the, the particular pressures and difficulties, but how does that reconcile with what God has said? And there's where the wisdom comes from. And, and God will subjectively, yes, apply that wisdom in some of those difficult situations, but most things are just plain and clear, and we just don't want to do it. And when we come for counseling, what we're really looking for is somebody to affirm the fact that, yeah, living the Christian life is hard, and, you know, God, God will understand if you don't quite do it right. And we want to be affirmed in going our own way when God has already told us and set before us the way. Folks, we desperately need God's wisdom, and he wants to give it. But the question is, are you receiving it? Are you receiving the wisdom he's already given? Wisdom, true wisdom, runs on the rails of submission and obedience. And, and that's exactly what the flesh doesn't want. And so we have this tug of war inside. And, and when we're choosing to yield to the flesh, James says, don't think that you're going to receive God's wisdom. You've already shunned it. You can't receive it. But if our desire is to embrace the wisdom God is giving already through his word, and, and, and the things where we need his help in knowing exactly how to apply it in difficult situations, we can ask for every kind of wisdom, knowing that God will give it freely, simply, without chiding. We'll receive it. We just need to start with, with the word of God. And we need to start by looking to Christ. Let me say this as we conclude this morning. The wisdom we need is not ultimately an answer or a formula or a plan or some special insight. The wisdom we need is found first and foremost in our relationship with Jesus as we look to his example, as we look to be like him, as we love him, as we follow him. Here's, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, but, but Christ is made Unto us, wisdom. Jesus himself is our wisdom. And you know, he and, and the Holy Spirit of God dwell within us, live within us. If we will yield, if we will submit, if, if we will allow the Spirit of God to control us, if we'll take the Word of God and say, okay, God, help me to live that now. We will experience live, uh, wisdom in every sense, but, but ultimately, it's Christ who is our wisdom. So, folks, that means that if you're not a Christian, what you need is Christ. And, and if you are a Christian, what you need is Christ. The, the need of the whole world is the same. We all need Jesus, and we need him more than we know. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning, and you're not certain that you're saved. God's, God's wisdom for you is that you need to turn to Jesus in saving faith. Maybe you don't even know what the word saved means. It means we come to God realizing that it's not by the works of righteousness that we've done but it's simply realizing that I am a sinner. Christ went to the cross. He shed his blood. He gave his life to pay the penalty for my sin. And if I will cry out to him, if I'll ask him for forgiveness, if I'll ask him for salvation, he will forgive my sins and give me eternal life and create in me new life in him. 
and I'll belong to him forever. And nothing can change me. That's the wisdom of God. Maybe you're a believer and the Spirit of God is prompting you to say, Lord Jesus, take the broken pieces of my life and put them back together again. Like, Like the songwriter said, here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Help me live out in wisdom the truth from your word that I already know and guide me in those areas where I'm unsure. Folks, we all desperately need God's wisdom. God wants to give us his wisdom. The question is, will you receive it? Do you want to receive it? Or are you going to just be content living a double-minded life? Let me ask you to stand to your feet if you